ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. It's a little bit late. It's been a crazy week for me, but we have it for you. Another weekly edition of the Dome Patrol with my good friend, my brother, the one and only Ross Jackson. Ross, welcome back. Hey, appreciate you, man. You know, you know, this is the highlight right here. This is what I've always, everything else is just working towards Wednesdays, Thursdays, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. We always get it in. We always get it done. <laughs> and we give it to the people, you know, give them right. honesty, we give them fun, and we, we just have, we have a good time. Yeah, brother. Glad to be here, man. Glad so to you be know here. where we have to start. Where's that? Two weeks <laughs> we had now. And we start with, did you see Judas and the Black Messiah? Yes, I saw it. I watched it. Before we get into it, let me tell you a little story. Um, I my what, what what we wanted to do was Megan and I wanted to watch it together and everything like that, and right. and it just it did never work out. Like we're both working from home, but you know how it is. We're still both very busy, and so we couldn't find like the two hours to kind of sit together because she works night, I work in the morning, things like that. So what happened is that one of these mornings. I woke up at like 5 a.m. And I just, uh, which is like, I'm usually like a 6 a.m. person. So I was up a little bit bit earlier than than usual. And I didn't have anything until about 8. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch Judas and the Black Messiah. She'll forgive me. She understands. It's an important movie. She knows that I've been trying to watch it so that we could talk about it and everything. Let me tell you all the reasons why I should not have done that. Yeah, the start of the day is a terrible time to have watched it. Man, that was a rough day. Just like starting my day off in that headspace. And at first of all, like in the morning, I don't know what it is, but you're you're mad vulnerable, right? Like mm-hmm. as you haven't had like the wear of the day and like getting into rhythm and everything like that. You're just like letting this set the tone. I'm so glad that I watched it. I'm so glad that we'll get to talk about it. I am not pleased with myself and the decision to watch it to start off my damn morning. That was wild. That was a wild choice. And I watched it. It was me, my wife, and my daughter. And it was mm-hmm. a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that was the best time to do it because I, I didn't yeah. want to go to bed with it on my head. Right. You know what I mean? Because I knew I wouldn't sleep. Right. Because it's just so it was so much for me mm-hmm. to take in. And I also knew I was going to need time to explain some things to my daughter. Sure. Yep. And yep. and even to my wife, mm-hmm. you know, because, again, you know, when you when you're in an, in an interracial relationship, there are things that you just have to talk about in a different way and explain. Yep. And it's not about the person not wanting to understand it's more about empathy they get it but they don't get it and you're just trying to 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 peel some of those layers back and explain some of that history to them and 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 fill in some blanks too because there's just Mm -hmm. stuff that most americans don't know right and that we're not surprised by because our families and our households talked about those things Mm -hmm. but generally people don't know about counter intel and, right. and the efforts that the federal government had to shut down these people 
Mm-hmm. So those were conversations that took a minute and they're, they're heavy yeah. and they're deep. So it's just, I was like, let's do this in the afternoon yeah. and, and, and sit together as a group and, and then absorb it. Right. But all I can say is like, I hadn't felt that way watching a film since I walked out of Malcolm X, you yes. know, at the end of that. Yep. Where my, and I, and I cut school, like Spike Lee said, you know, it's like cut school and go yep. see Malcolm X. Me and two friends, we cut school and, and went to go see that. And I'm gonna tell you this quick story because you're gonna yeah, find yeah. it hilarious, okay? So we go see Malcolm X, me and my friends. Uh-huh. And I go home and I'm, I'm drained, right? I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm 17 years old, I'm drained. And um, I already had a reputation at my school for being a, a militant. Sure. Um, so I'm just fired up and drained. But then my parents come home, right? Uh-huh. They don't know I skipped school. They don't know what I did right. that afternoon. But they walk in the door and they're like, hey, I'm going to see Malcolm X <laughs> <laughs> Now, I have been through three and a half hours of Malcolm X already that day. Oh, no. <laughs> And my parents want me to do another three and a half hours of Malcolm X, and I can't say no. Right? They know what are you how gonna I say? Feel. What are you gonna do? Right? Like you know what I'm saying, I got, I had the cap, I had the right. shirt, I had all of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't say no. Right. So we go to the theater, and I'm in the line, and I'm just like, man, I can't believe I'm have to sit through this again because I'm not ready to sit through this again. But uh-huh. also because I've got to feign emotion throughout this like i'm surprised <laughs> so it was work the whole time you were on stage you were the movie <laughs> <laughs> and i was just like i had to i was like oh so so emotional pop and, you know, I just, it just it, it was just it was too quick to do it again but uh, yeah. it, it, my parents I, about 10 years later i told them i was about to ask what happened and my dad was just like typical you <laughs> that's, that's typical you oh man you're like all right i'm gonna skip school and then it's like immediate karma like nah you about to sit through this for seven hours today right like, you about to have seven like, hours oh of- you want to feel black <laughs> you're gonna feel real black today this, this gonna be a black yeah, day yeah. for you all right there ain't no escaping this <laughs> <laughs> oh no that's that's rough like i mean i literally spent a more than a quarter of my day watching Malcolm X. Damn. Yeah, half your waking hours. Right? <laughs> Steeped in trauma. And I'm just like, oh, oh, man. That was a mistake. You know, That's like, wild. That's funny because, like, uh, you know, Judas the Black Messiah is, what, two hours, five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And then I told my fiance, like, we'll watch it again next week. Like, I'm gonna say, I couldn't imagine watching that two times in the same day, let alone Mal- uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> Mm-mm. No, because the last mm-hmm. twenty minutes of Malcolm X is just so Ugh. much. Yes, you know, like knowing you know up to the assassination. Right. And in this movie, it's the same thing because you mm-hmm. know, as it gets closer and closer, you already know how it ends. Yeah. But to see it and that, that trauma was, that it elicits. Yeah, that was the thing for me. Is I was like. From the very beginning of this movie, one of the big things, and this just happens to me with any of these like biopic film type focuses where we're talking about a real life figure and we know what happens. We know this person gets assassinated. What, how are they going to depict it and everything? I thought they did it 
beautifully and tragically all at the same time. The way that they did it in this film. I don't want to spoil it, but the way that they handled it, I thought was great. But it is something that like for two hours and well, for two hours before you get to the last, you know, five minutes, you're building up to that point. Like, you know, what's coming. It's just like, all right, how are they going to do this? And that was like on my brain the entire time, along with all of the other things. There were some things I wish, and this is just what happens when you try to take somebody's legacy and boil it down to two hours. Like, there are things that you wish maybe would have gotten, would have gotten covered a little bit more. Like, I would have loved, uh, you know, a couple little things. I would have loved a little bit more on what the Rainbow Coalition did achieve, mm-hmm. right? A little bit more on uh, the shift in gun control laws once the Panthers showed up with arms. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And things like that. Like, those are the, but you know, you can only do so much in so much time. I thought what they did was extremely successful. Um, and it's enough for you to have a real and honest conversation without having to unteach anything, which doesn't happen in film a lot. Like, you look at like Green Book, there's so much you have to unteach from that damn film. So much you have to unteach. This, I didn't feel like there was as much of that. No. Like, but you see those green, movies like Green Book and remember Crash when it won the Oscar, which I can't find a single black person <laughs> that likes Crash. Oh, I erased that from my memory. Yo. Like, I was, <laughs> like, I went to the theater to see that and oh. it wasn't my choice. You know, it's, uh, you know, when people say, let's go. Did you go with date. white people? I went with, no, I went with a girl. Okay. Uh, was, I don't know why that was. She wanted to go see that on a date. That was like, this, I know, this don't seem like a date. Movie. <laughs> but, I, you know, that's one of the ones we like. Oh, this is this is not working for me at all. And then it wins the Academy Award. Like, <laughs> and the same with Green like, Book. It's like, though, yes. But I mean, you could go all the way back to the Color Purple. Color Purple. And talk about mm-hmm. this and and white seeing the black experience through white eyes, and even in these movies. The problem is we keep seeing the perspective from the view of the person who brings the, the person down yep, and not from the, the perspective of Fred Hampton yep. um, in this particular case. And, and what Bob, I think that does not, I think that that addresses the things that you're missing mm-hmm. is that we don't get enough of how did Fred Hampton at 19 years old, that that in itself, like the only other person that that we really could can compare that to is John Lewis, right? Who became the right hand to Martin Luther King at, as a college mm-hmm. student, right? Or Stokely Carmichael, who was mm-hmm. the leader of, of SNCC and w- rose very quickly um, mm-hmm. among the ranks because of his ambition to lead, right? So so then you have this young man who's at twenty one, the chairman of. The Black Panther Black Party, Panther in, Party Chicago, in Chicago, like, come on. The second largest chapter, mm-hmm. and we don't find out how he gets there. Right. And that part, the sacrifice, the financial sacrifice, you kind of get it because you see these people sleeping in this apartment and, and it's small. and what. But even in, like, the Chicago 7, which came out earlier mm-hmm. last year, the trial of Chicago 7, whose part is minimized the most? Right. You know, it's the black characters in that who yep. are minimized and treated as afterthoughts. But right. the actors themselves lend so much and they put everything they have into those roles. And now you got this film about Marcus Garvey getting made, getting mm-hmm. made. But it's also from the perspective the of the thing. person who rats out Marcus Garvey. And it's right. just 
why can't we allow these people's stories to be told? We don't do that with white heroes. You didn't Braveheart did mm-hmm. not come from the perspective of the British. Right. You know what I mean? So yep. why can't we do this for black heroes and yeah. black figures? It's this really interesting thing because like I, I talk a lot and, and you know, we have these conversations in in like the artistic conversations we have in theater all the time because so many black so much black work is is grounded in trauma. And so that's what drives this perspective in that we're not watching the success, we're watching the end. And yep. that's always the case. It's always the case. We get like six or seven minutes of success so that you 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 attach yourself to that character. And then from that point forward, we're all downfall. It's all downfall. Even down to the moments where like you see that person act out of character for the first time, right? When the trunk gets popped and all those they have that other scene and things like that. Like there's all of these other little moments that are like we could look at that from a different perspective. But if we looked at it from the other perspective, we would be forced to tell this story about how everything led to this point as opposed to what everything led to, which is always what people are trying to get to. They're trying to get to the, you know, the the the, the assassination. They're trying to get to, um, you know, I, I was going to I was going to use another example, but it's always the assassination. Right. But you know what I'm saying? It's always that thing or the exile or the the, the fleeing in Eldridge Cleaver's case. Like it's always about getting to that point as opposed to this idea of like building up a hero and everything. And I think that 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 is part of what we miss. I think that viewership might take it for granted because, you know, the the target demographic of that film knows what that buildup was for the most part but at the same time it's an opportunity for us to actually like see that from that perspective as opposed to watching it from you know William Sands perspective like I'm cool and typically it lets like even if the way that they show J. Edgar Hoover and they show the FBI mm-hmm. they still let off the hook at the end because it comes down to this black man it's the transgression between uh, two black men. Yeah. And they don't they don't even give you enough of the background because mm-hmm. that 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 fit real person his story is more complicated than it's presented massively in film. complicated. Yeah. And all the things that it wasn't just one car theft that that flipped him into this. It's a lot right. of crimes in his yeah. background. Yeah. And and then just to make it well and then he shot himself. I mean, then he committed suicide after you and <laughs> but no, this dude ran right. out into traffic right. and, and had himself killed by a vehicle. Right. Like it wasn't shooting himself like these, you know, like it was yeah. a it, all it said was that he committed, him. yeah. All it said was that he committed suicide. When like the fact of the matter is that like he he literally forced someone else to punish him. You know what I mean? Like that's the the psychology the psychology of that is so much more complex than a sentence, you know what I'm saying? And then it's it's, it's like you're also mentioning too is that the build up to that point to where he gets flipped into that informant doesn't come from this single mishap. It is all of the things that happened before that, and all the things that led to the necessity for him to commit all of that in the first place, right? And that's like we always kind of talk about condemning the responder as opposed to condemning the catalyst yep. 
and we never get back far enough to talk about the catalyst. You know what I mean? Unless you're, you know, um, unless you're specifically really looking at that being a topic, right? We never go back that far. And I think that there's part of that, even within the way that we look at Fred Hampton's story as well. Like we don't even get to, like we don't get to the impetus of the Black Panther Party being founded and what drove that necessity. We don't get to any of the things that happened before. And that's the film that I feel like people need to see is what, like, instead of looking at the downfall of the Black Panther Party or the end of, you know, this man that did these incredible things in three years of life, essentially, right? Two years of life, honestly, in terms of what he was able to do in terms of his larger trajectory as chairman, we should be looking back from before that and then into that right and we know what we know how it all ends and we understand how like disgusting and dirty it all is but there's still so much more to it um i do want to say daniel kalua kaluya uh herculean effort in this film i mean just incredible dude his he does more acting with his eyes in that movie man than any word that he says it, like his eyes from scene to scene convey so much. I, I mean, and Lakeith Stanfield is fantastic yes. as well. Yep. But I, I, I do understand the criticism about both of them being a little too old mm-hmm. um, because both of these guys were under 25, you know, when this happened. And yeah. they, Daniel Kaluuya does not look 21, but no, but he embodies it. Like yeah. from everything I've seen of Fred Hampton, he embodies it. Yeah, it's an incredible the the um, the the his his freedom speech, like right after getting out of jail and everything, getting out of prison. The I am a revolutionary speech. His his rendition of that is remarkable. One of the I think one of the best solo performances I've seen in a film in a long time. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible rendition and incredible incredible job staying true to the essence of it while also just making it as powerful as it was like that was one of those things where like my body did not know what to do in that moment i had no idea where to go where to look what to do like i it was sensory overload in the most meaningful way just to hear those words and to hear the way that he delivered that performance it it was incredible i Um, i I literally stood up at home i stood up yeah. You know, and, and for what? You know what I mean? Like, I'm in my right. house. Right. But I wanted in that moment to be in that room. Yes, exactly. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. That was my feeling as well. Like, that brought me to tears because I, I didn't have the outlet of, you know, the call and response. You know what I mean? As a viewer. And I didn't have the outlet of community around me like they had in that moment right but i wanted that i wanted that like and that i know was, that desperation oh, mm-hmm. i know that that feeling right. of of wanting enough power to be seen yeah and right. and that's that's what they were asking for and that's what we're yep. still asking for mm-hmm. and it was reminiscent to me of i remember you know, going back to Malcolm X, I remember Spike talking about that speech, you know, when, mm-hmm. when Denzel does the, the the famous speech outside of mosque number one mm-hmm. and, you know, bamboozled, hoodwinked, led astray. And he said to a lot of that, he said in that moment, he lost Denzel. Mm-hmm. Like Denzel mm-hmm. was Malcolm. 
He said, right. like, there was no acting in that. He was right. there in ways that few people get into the place. So like you said, you inhabit it mm-hmm. and you have traded places in a way. You stop seeing the person and all you see is the character. Yep. And that's a really hard thing to do um, when you are as famous as these people are. Mm-hmm. You could go back. And sometimes I know my mind does this in movies where I try to imagine that same actor as a different character from another <laughs> one of their movies. Right. And there's none of that. You know there's what I'm saying? No I don't way. have the opportunity to do that. I'm just so no. lost in, in the, in the film. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I mean, the performance is all around, like across the entire party, the performance of, uh, his, his girlfriend. Deborah. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I Deborah, her name. Deborah's the character's name. I can't remember the actor's but, name. Oh but. my God. Just, she's phenomenal and, yeah. and real and presented as an, a fully fleshed out black woman mm-hmm. with concerns, yep. with complexity, strength, layers, and she's dimension. not. She's she wasn't played by someone to beautify, right? That role and make it more palatable to the audience. She's a, a regular black woman, yeah. and that is an important thing to see too. Yeah, it's, it's rare when you incredible. get that a love interest in a film where the woman isn't made prettier. You know what I mean? Right. Just. You know, and I'm not saying this woman is not attractive. You know, no, no, I'm no. saying by how ho- what Hollywood does exactly, and yes. and and tries to change people and change mm-hmm. the looks of people. No, they were true to the person, and they let the actor be the the person rather than trying to shape something for the benefit of the audience. Yeah, and and the, there would have been no benefit in making her less of who she was. Yeah, it's 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 a wildly incredible performance uh dominique fishbeck is her name yeah um just incredible i think she's also a playwright too if i remember correctly i think she's going to end up getting nominated for best supporting actress i hope so because the last the scene yes you know that oh Oh, yeah again to to what she what she's able to convey Mm. without a word Mm -hmm. that those things are and and you this is your field mm-hmm. so you live with this and you know my sister is an actress and, mm-hmm. and but i don't think i just i'm just an observer right but i just know how things make me feel and yeah and it, 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 it took something from me mm-hmm. but it gave more to me yeah yeah um it's it's challenging like to 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 pull that off because so much of television and film isn't even about the exchange or the dialogue. It's about the reaction. That's why everything, like if you watch a, a, either a dramatic television show or, or a comedic television show, even if you watch a TV show, the last shot before a scene changes is always a silent shot of the person reacting. It very rarely, it's, it's, it's a deliberate choice when something immediately ends on a line or even begins on a line, you always end or start with a reaction. And so it is such a a foundational and incredibly important, but sometimes overworked skill that doesn't become skill anymore. It becomes routine. That's where Dominique Fishback was different. That's where Daniel Kaluuya was different to where it was a skill to where they told you an entire story without moving. And that's incredibly hard to do. And it just makes you feel because the only thing that you can do and the reason why it's so effective is because the only thing that you can do as a viewer, you are forced to fill the space. 
Mm-hmm. You are forced to think for that character. That's why it's so effective, right? It's why when something, we're the reason why we find something funny when somebody reacts with just like their eyes or their face or something like that is because we're inserting the fact that it is funny. We're filling the blank. We're telling ourselves that's funny. And then that's why it's effective. Same thing with these dramatic moments to where we have to, we're sitting there. And this particular shot that you're talking about, sitting there. And the only thing that we can do is fill in the fill in the blanks ourselves. And the way it's shot. Yes. Makes you feel present. Yes. You are you feel like you are there. Like you like you are there. You're like you are in that room with them. And Mm -hmm. that is something also that's very difficult for any director to pull off is to give you that feeling of intimacy in a dramatic moment rather than make you feel as if you're watching it from a distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it was just, I, I could go on about it. I, I mean, know. I could, I know. You know <laughs> and I know folks are like, when y'all going to talk football, we're getting ready to. But I, all I can say is I think it's, it's, it's something that if you have not seen it, please, please see it. And that, yes. that's for everybody. I'm not talking to any yes. particular group, any mm-hmm. age. I think it's something that parents should watch with their children. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and, it be, and then I think you should follow up. I mean, my daughter, the first time we talked about Fred Hampton was, mm-hmm. was last year. Um, and immediately that inspired her. And she did her social studies project, not on Hampton, but on, I think that's all about the, the Ho Avenue peace mm-hmm. meeting in New York city. And yep. I didn't tell her that. And I mean, you know, you don't know what's going to spark a kid Mm-mm. And make them want to know more about how to make the the world better. Yep. And yeah. that's all I can. That's all I could have hoped for as a parent is not to depress her. Yep. But to make to inspire her, and she was inspired. And yeah, that that to me is a gift. Yeah, I had a similar I had a similar moment when I was younger to where someone they were afraid to tell me about you know, certain things because it's the same thing, right? You don't want to scare anybody. You just want to give somebody a realistic expectation and then let them know their history, right? And so I was taught a little bit more about the Black Panther Party and everything. And then I eventually, it was actually Eldridge Cleaver because the book, Soul on Fire, Soul on Ice and everything. And so I was able to grab those books. And I remember um, I I was in this like predominantly white school. This is post-Katrina. I was in this predominantly white school at the time. And then, you know, we had to do, it was, just, it was a similar thing where we were doing, I think it was a, a, a sociology class or something like that. And it was like, all right, well, you could just pick a historical figure. And I had just finished, you know, like slowly reading through. I was a terrible reader. I didn't finish really learning how to read until grad school. Like I was taking adult literacy classes and stuff. And so I was like, had just finished. And I was like, damn it, I just put myself through all of that. I'm going to write about this. And then they gave me a chance to like, you know, you had to go up and do a presentation. Entire like two hour class, me. I didn't give a damn about anybody else that was going up after me. I was like, let me tell you a story. (laughs) I took these, I took these people from, you know, the, the peace meetings on the East all the way to you know, Algeria. <laughs> I, I took them from one point to the other, and I was like, all right, we're done. <laughs> I took them for that entire time, but I was inspired. I was inspired by it, similarly to what, what you're describing. And I think that that's such an important thing is like, don't be afraid 
to tell people their history because it probably won't scare them. You know what I mean? You have to do it right. Like you have to talk about it in a certain context and everything, particularly when you're talking about children, right? You have to put it in a certain context so that they don't feel that they're, you know, <laughs> in danger. But giving them a realistic understanding of exactly what happened before them, how they got here and what's left to do is valuable because they might be the one to do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so like, it, it's an incredibly important piece to share. Yeah. You never know when you could be called to lead. And, right. and, and yet you said at 19, man, I just, I know as at 19, no, I couldn't I, have been in charge of nothing. I wasn't ready to lead a movement. <laughs> I, couldn't have been, you, no, I couldn't have been part of it. You know what right, I'm saying? Yes, I, I'll yes, show yes. up. Easy. <laughs> but put me in charge and start brokering deals with gangs and all. Hey, man, no, no. I'm like, I'll, 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 I'll ride with you, dog. You know right. what I'm saying? But yeah. uh, you, I will you, be there. <laughs> and I'm a good talker, but yeah. I, ain't that, I, I didn't have that at 19. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's, let's move on to the Saints. There's no way to transition, but let's no, move no, on no, to no. the let's Saints. No, no, no. Let's just do it. <laughs> and we start with Drew Brees. That's where everything starts and ends. And it's going to be until we get something, some type of clarity. Right. Yes, we've seen the video of him pushing weights up the hill and it's about his best time ever and my mm. first thought of course was man that plantar fascia that, that shoulder healed up quick <laughs> <laughs> all this stuff he was so battered and bruised it healed up real good in yeah. less than a month but that's not somebody getting ready for nbc right i mean i guess i look here's the way that i look at it drew Brees is going to continue to work out He's not going to change his, uh, you know, there's nothing about what he's going to do that's going to change his routine. He's a creature of habit kind of a guy and everything like that. Like, I don't look at that workout video as anything other than, oh, look, it's Drew Brees doing his thing. You know what I mean? I know folks have gotten like pretty excited about it and everything. Been like, oh, Drew Brees is coming back. Like, no, I, I'm not. I'm not ready to, to, to pull that switch yet. I don't think he is either. Um, and there's a lot being made of him taking his time. But what's the rush? What's the rush to announce? He already took the pay cut. The only difference now between his retirement and not retiring is $1.075 million. That's it. You know what I mean? There's no rush to to announce everything like that. The Saints can still have their conversations. They can still talk to folks and everything. They're probably just not going to officially sign certain players and make certain moves as to not signal and everything. But doesn't mean they're not working. He's not holding anybody up. He should take his time. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, yeah. He's out there pushing weights. That's cool, but I don't think it really identifies anything other than he's still taking care of himself. But I just didn't get the point of it. Yeah. Like, out of all the videos that he's been doing recently and pictures, they've all been to sell stuff. And then all of a sudden you throw this in there. Right. It's like, why? What is? What are you trying to say? Because yeah. even if you're saying you're saying nothing, you're saying something by putting this out there. Right. And, and so you either you wanted the buzz to mm -hmm. have people think about it. But again, why? What is the point of that if you are going to retire? What's the point? And if you aren't, what is the point? Like, if, yeah. it, you know, like you said, he has to go through his process. I get it. Retirement is a hard thing for any athlete, sure. particularly a great one. Mm -hmm. It is it, once you do it, you can't undo it in mm -hmm. a real way. Like once that paperwork is filed, that's that's generally it. Yeah. And I think that that's a hard thing to come to that conclusion in life and to, and to, to do that. But let's say the what I would view as the worst case scenario for the Saints is 
He says, I want to run it back one more time. I mm-hmm. feel like I wasn't healthy at the end of the year. I think I can come back and be healthy and lead this team to a Super Bowl. Though we've already seen players kind of respond to the Russell Wilson rumors, and we'll get into mm-hmm. that in a minute. It feels like the team is moving on, even if Drew isn't ready to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I there's, I guess there is a reality to where he Brett Favre's, right? And he's like, I'm going to come back and everything. There's also a reality in which the New Orleans Saints, Green Bay Packers, and say, you can come back, but not here. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think that they would do that. Um, I think that that conversation would happen behind closed doors as opposed to that Green Bay situation. Uh, but, you know, because Drew Brees has said in the past before, when he's had opportunities to go and sign somewhere else for $30 million a year, it's New Orleans Saints or it's New Orleans or nowhere. You know what I mean? That's the attitude that he's always had. I believe that that is a true attitude for him. Um, and I think that if there was a conversation that they had and they said, hey, and you know, Drew Brees came in and he was like, yo, I, I think I can I can run it back. But the Saints are ready to move forward. Then he wouldn't run it back. You know what I mean? And and if the Saints were not ready to move forward, and they wanted to work with them. That's a huge, huge thing that you have to now figure out and work out because Drew Brees ain't playing on 1.075 million dollar base salary you know what I mean and there's no oh he's made enough money it doesn't matter he doesn't need it yes he does like every athlete still needs that money because every athlete is going to have medical bills to pay for the rest of their lives right regardless of any type of insurance or whatever or lack thereof that we've seen from the NFL in the past or lack of care for players who retire he's going to have medical bills for the rest of his life He's got a quality of life to maintain. He's got kids to support. He's and he's not taken home. If he if you talk about him making twenty five million dollars in a year, he's not taking home twenty five million dollars. Like he's getting taxed. He's paying agents. He's paying this. He's paying that. He's got endorsements, but most of that money's not coming to him either. Like it's a fraction of all of that. So yes, he needs the money, and yes, he should say I'm not playing on a veteran minimum deal because there's no reason for him to do so, especially considering the extensive injuries that he suffered over the past two years. So why go out there and risk with every year that you go back out there, the risk is inherently greater. doesn't matter how hard you work, how hard you train, anything like that. Like the risk is inherently greater with every passing year. That's the NFL. And so there would be no reason for him to say, oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll run it back, but I'll run it back on vet minimum. No, I don't see that happening at all. Um, What does this mean for Jameis at this point? Because mm-hmm. as much as the Saints keep saying they want him to come back, at some point, if you're Jameis, you want to go check and see what's out there. You want to see, are there other situations? Because until, mm-hmm. you know, until signatures on paper, you're not back. Right. Yeah. The, the, the benefit for the Saints is that Jameis can't go anywhere right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he can't talk with other teams. Other teams can't talk to him. Um, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure, you know, there's always there's always conversations. There's always things. Don't get me wrong. Third but parties. Can, there's this there's intermediaries, right. ways to get around everything. Yeah. Yeah. But like there's no direct contact between him and, and any other team across the NFL because that would end up getting him and the team around the NFL, you know, that other team in a ton of trouble. And so they have until March 15th before there's any kind of, you know, tampering allowed or any type of contact allowed. So he's not negotiating contracts anywhere else or anything like that, right? He might be getting information here, there, and everywhere. But in terms of it coming from the source, less of a chance of all of that. And the only team, but I'll tell you, like the team that he can be in the office with, the team that can be contacting him, the team that can be actively negotiating with him is the New Orleans Saints. So even if he's picking up information 
about other teams and their interests and everything like that. Nobody is in front of him like New Orleans is right now saying, here is our plan. You know what I mean? So at this time, I don't think that it makes too much of a difference for Jameis. There may already be some, you know, there's also a world in which that there's an understanding, right? Hey, Drew's mm-hmm. taking his time because he wants to be absolutely at peace before making the public decision, but he's already let the, you know, perhaps he's already let the 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 facility know, the organization know. And so there's already an understanding in place. Like there's a world in which that's the case, right? So it, it doesn't, I don't think it has too much of an effect on Jameis right now. If his intent is to return to New Orleans, I don't think that anything that's happened here recently will have changed that. And Cam talked about it, and he said that they're fully confident in Jameis and that he mm-hmm. knows the organization wants right. him to him to come back. I would imagine that Mickey Loomis has laid down the financial situations yes. for Jameis. Like, yep. here's where we're going to be, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is what we expect to be able to offer you. Yep. I, I because I think if you're Jameis, that's your first question is, yeah, I know that, you know, we all look at the cap number mm-hmm. and Jameis is probably just saying, hey, Mickey's not going to tell him every bit in detail. Right, right. But of course. certainly he's like, here's our plan in in, yeah. in the broad strokes. And here's where we see you fitting in. Yeah. You know, and, and I think yeah. that that communication is that's something the Saints have always done is communicate yep. with their players and have those individual ideas for each one. I think that's they they went into Taysom's offseason the same way last year, I believe, and told mm-hmm. him what their expectations were, both financially and with his role. Um, and that's why Sean Payton talked it up. And I think that's the same thing now is that they have you don't keep publicly saying we want Jameis to return or we really like Jameis, we like what we saw out of him, if you're not serious about bringing yeah. him back. Right. Now, it may not happen. I can't, we can't predict the future completely. Yeah, we don't know. But you can also look around the NFL and say, where's the competition? Like, where's the competition for him? The competition's New England, which isn't a fit, and or it's not much of a fit. And then Chicago. And if you listen to Jim Nagy talk, he wants Alex Smith. I'm, <laughs> I'm completely convinced. That dude, Nagy has brought up, like, he did a press conference the other day unsolicited, uh, completely unsolicited, three separate times evoking Alex Smith's name. Like, Okay. What are they cool. doing in Chicago that to evaluate quarterbacks? Uh, to, to, getting to ready, take... getting ready, getting ready for the baseball season. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing? You overpaid for Nick Foles. You drafted Mitchell Trubisky. You jumped ahead of people to draft Mitchell Trubisky, who you don't even trust to throw the football. And now mm-hmm. you talk about Alex Smith, who I'm sorry, Alex Smith's prime was five years ago, right? And even his prime was boring as hell. <laughs> like that dude was seven yards in a clouds of clouded dust as a quarterback. Right. People be talk careful. about Drew Brees' air yards. I was say, be, be careful. Ain't giving you no air yards. <laughs> that, that might make him you you know certified USDA prime saint if you ain't careful. No air yards. Uh, Look, you know, redemption you. redemption project. Like Alvin Kamara <laughs> might get three hundred catches <laughs> because that's Captain Checkdown. <laughs> he ain't throwing an incompletion. Like Alex Smith, that's why he's over seventy percent, like near seventy percent every year because he doesn't throw right. it far. Right. I don't know what the Bears yeah. are doing. But Let's, yeah, but yeah, like that's the thing is like where's where's the competition for Jameis anyway? Carolina. Maybe. Maybe Carolina, but I think Carolina's got bigger plans because they're also in the top eight of their uh, of the draft. They could potentially easily move up. They also have fodder potentially move for Deshaun Watson once Deshaun Watson finally gets himself out of there, and then maybe Houston becomes you know a suitor for Jameis. But 
Jameis would have to be on the market and Houston would have to stop being stubborn about Deshaun uh, and then move forward. But then again, depending Houston upon have where the money. Does Houston have the money to make it work with all the money they're going to be losing uh, with everything that's going on and the money they've already lost? And then they again, like if let's say they trade him to Carolina, they trade Deshaun Watson to Carolina, then they have a top eight pick that they can and much more that they can use to also move up for their next guy. So, you know, the, everybody else that's out there that might need quarterback help is in range to get theirs in the draft. And would probably rather prioritize the money that they're spending on skill position players since they'll be able to move forward with a cheap quarterback. So let's talk about Russell Wilson. Mm -hmm. First, what do you feel would be the likelihood that the Saints are, you know, we keep hearing the Saints are interested, which they should be. You kick the tires Mm -hmm. on an all-pro quarterback. Um, But realistically, Mm -hmm. the Saints have the assets, really, to make this worth Seattle's while. They they have the assets to they have enough capital because of how loose they are with draft capital, first of all. They have the capital to be in the conversation. Um, do they have the capital to win over a Seattle Seahawks team that is not interested in trading away Russell Wilson while Russell Wilson isn't actively demanding a trade? Probably not. However, is that how does this convert what does this conversation look like next year right next season what does this conversation look like this is a perfect time right now right now is a perfect time for seattle to say okay you want more organizational input here's how we're gonna do it free agency who would you like who would be helpful where do you want us to focus and get his input and then act on at least portions of it as you know as appropriate and as as you're able to do right because there, there is a limit to what you can do all right, we're coming up to the draft. You know, usually we go for third round linebackers in the first round as the Seattle Seahawks. What would you like us to do instead? And so then he gets to put in his input and then offensive you line. To, right, offensive exactly. line. <laughs> yes, that's the that's the entire list. Like it's list one through twenty-three, and they're all offensive line. Like that's all of it. And maybe like one running back instead of this running back by committee system that doesn't work in Pete Carroll's system. So you look at what is happening right now in terms of free agency in the draft where we are in the offseason this is the perfect time for seattle to prove something to russell wilson and say okay you don't want to be traded right now we hear you if you were to be traded those are the four teams you would want to be traded to that's we hear you but here's an opportunity for us to prove something to you by giving you organizational input if they don't do that then perhaps after free agency after the draft before the season that could be a time to where he becomes maybe a little bit more available. And then you're talking about future draft capital that starts in 2022, as opposed to where the Saints don't have a lot of capital right now, which is 2021, depending upon what the Saints move from 2022 in this year's draft. Mm -hmm. So that's where maybe this conversation gets a little bit more interesting because he only has two years, like he has this year, and then only two years worth of draft picks that he's actually on your contract, on your books, and then you're trading things for when he's off of your contract, which could be more appealing, right? Either he's off the contract or he's 35 years old, either way. So for the for, for Seattle, there's something to be said in like, okay, we're moving him to a team and these first two picks that we're going to get, probably going to be late first rounders, but that third one, because he'll be either 35 or not on the team anymore, that could be, you know, a top 15, top 10 selection, depending upon what team they're trading him to. 
The other piece is figuring out what types of assets in terms of like player assets to move in addition, or if the price drops because of where it's happening, all of a sudden he's demanding a trade, right? So it depends on how really the next sort of uh, phases of the offseason play out to me. But at this point right now, I don't see it being very likely before more stuff falls apart in Seattle. Of those four teams, Bears, Cowboys, Raiders, Saints, when you look at them, I mean, on paper, the Saints are the best fit. They have everything that he's asking for. You have a solid offensive line. You have very good skill position players at every Mm -hmm. spot. You have a very good defense, a top 10 in the NFL defense that you think will largely be coming back. There may be a a couple of losses, but you think the core of that defense will be returning. And you talk about cultural fit. You want to come Mm -hmm. in and and be in a place that is going to boost you, going to do everything that they can to put you in a position to win. And then you talk about head coach of the four head coaches of those franchise. Who are you going to have the most uh, confidence in? Nagy? Mike McCarthy, John Gruden, or Sean Payton. Right. So, I mean, yeah, on paper, the Saints are the best fit, but I think you're right. Seattle has no rush to do this. They have a player under contract. The hit that they take on their cap of over $35 million of dead money, I can't see any owner saying, I'm going to take that. And knowing, you know, it just, okay, we'll do that. And we just signed this guy two years ago. And he's still one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL. Right. And I'm just going to give that away for a guess. Because that's what you're doing. You're giving it that's away for a guess. Mm-hmm. And then the player assets that you get from any of these teams are clearly players that this team is okay getting rid of. That's what. That's right. why it's a trade. So yep. if the Saints gave away, say, um, to Ron Armstead. Mm-hmm. You know, because Seattle wants to bolster their line, and you or that Which hurts. Would be massively ironic, by the way. Yes, it would. You get an <laughs> offensive line, and you lose the quarterback right. that asks for offensive line help. <laughs> but if you're Seattle, again, that's a risk because you're taking right. on a player who's had an injury history. The Saints mm-hmm. ain't giving up Ramchek for Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. They ain't giving up, you know, <laughs> McCoy. Yeah. For, McCoy, for- McCoy, McCoy is an interesting one. McCoy is actually one that I would say they could potentially, like, I'm not saying that they're interested in moving or anything. This is not a report, but there's a world in which you say, all right, we want to see, we know Cesar Ruiz, if the organization feels comfortable, Cesar Ruiz is going to be better in his natural position at center. And then you're filling the right guard position over the offseason as opposed to the center position. That's a much better situation to be in. So you could potentially then move Eric McCoy, shift Cesar Ruiz back to center. It's actually like there's there's something there because then you're sending a cheap offensive lineman at that point. But you're right. Like you're in no hurry to trade away anybody on that offensive line honestly because I mean, if you're the saints you have to figure even if we don't get russell wilson we're still confident in Jameis. if we have right if we exactly Jameis. and we need the line mm-hmm. because i'm not going to punish alvin Kamara for right. this i'm not going to make him suffer with less of a line i'm not going to do that to, to latavius murray if he's back i'm not going to do that to my wide receivers because the whole thing is i'm going to have no matter who it is i'm going to have to provide more time than i did for drew Brees. yes I mean, if I'm the Saints, this is a waiting game. I am in no rush. I don't need a godfather offer at this point. And I see, you know, we see them on Twitter every day. This is my offer for Russell Wilson. This is my, why are you trying to set the market? The Saints should in no way be trying to set the market here Mm -mm. for Russell Wilson because they are not in a position of dire need. 
Right. Bears, yes. The Cowboys, yes, because they don't know what Dak Prescott's going to be if he's going to be healthy. So uh, yeah, if you're the Cowboys, that's something you have to explore. If you're the Raiders, yeah, because you, I mean, I think you've seen the best of Derek Carr. What right? What is his ceiling? Yeah, he's reached that. He's a yeah. competent but mid-range quarterback. Right. So those teams could use it, and it's it's going to Russ Wilson would sell tickets in Vegas. Mm-hmm. But the Saints are going to sell tickets regardless. Right. And you and we see Sean Payton will figure it out with quarterbacks with less talent. Than Jameis Winston. Mm-hmm. So to me, yeah, it, it, it's it's folly at this point for the Saints to go after Russell Wilson. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's one of those things where, like, all right, our name was on the list. Reach out. You know what I mean? That's what the organization's thinking. Let's see what it is and everything like that. And then I imagine that phone call was very short, very brief. Seattle saying we're not actually moving him. He's not asking to be traded. Um, so we're not really taking any offers at this time. And then maybe they revisit it at a later time, like if if stuff really sours with Seattle. And but then if stuff really sours with Seattle, then the price drops all of a sudden in terms of what Seattle can demand for him because he wants out. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and so like there, there's all these other equations to it. I don't think that the Saints are in a position to where they feel like they're at a dire need at that position to the point to where they need to make that, like you said, Godfather offer. Yep. And everything. It just doesn't seem to be in the cards at the moment. No. And you've got other priorities. And that's a good thing. And yeah. that's a good thing. And you've got other priorities. I mean, quite frankly, you have other priorities. And let's deal with the cap real quick because the Saints made some mm-hmm. moves. Um, letting go of their tight ends and Jared Cook and Joshua. We didn't expect Jared Cook to come back. I don't and Joshua right. again was a borderline guy. He could return mm-hmm. at a lower price, possibly. Um, once they get through the offseason and take care of the other priorities, I, I think he will definitely be by the phone waiting for the Saints mm-hmm. to call. Um, then you have a uh, restructuring for David Onyemata, restructuring for Will Lutz. What's the next step for them in the cap uh, to get down, cut that $60 million plus uh, gap to get under the cap? Yeah, I think the biggest moves are going to be the upcoming, I, I imagine upcoming restructures for guys like Teron Armstead, Michael Thomas. Uh, you would probably get some smaller restructures for a guy like Andrus Pete or uh, Cam Jordan to where they're not doing a max restructure, but they're just restructuring a portion. Uh, Demario Davis is another candidate for either one of those options as well. And then the extensions that I'm sure that they hope to get done with uh, Marshawn Lattimore and, and Ryan Ramchick. Those are going to kind of be the biggest moves, but I wouldn't be surprised to see more of these smaller signings. And the fact that the Saints are signing players before worrying about getting under the cap, which they don't have to be under the cap until March 17th anyway, but the fact that they're doing it shows you they have a very clear plan of how they're going to get there. Otherwise, they're not spending money while trying to make money. They would just focus on making money. Clearly, they have a very clear plan about how all that gets done. Uh, so maybe some of these other signings like Justin Hardy, Michael Burton, James Hurst, these guys that are very important to the team, but their contracts are financially not as complicated as, you know, trying to escalate, put escalators in, de-escalators in, signing bonuses, all these other things. So that's what I would look for to continue to happen simultaneously is all that restructuring and then anything going on in terms of those more simple contracts not to downplay the players it's just that the money's simpler to deal with when you're talking about a two-year four million dollar contract as opposed to you know a five-year you know 45 million dollar contract or whatever with this escalator and these bonuses and all that i think marcus davenport's position 
as a priority continues to drop. Mm. Um, yeah, because just, you do have to make a decision on his fifth year option soon. And I, I just don't, I don't see, first of all, I think the Saints believe that most guys, like any other franchise, they believe most guys are replaceable, like mm-hmm. immediately replaceable. Right. That's why there are very few stars in, in any league, franchise players. And I think, you know, it, you can only rely on a guy's production pr- potential for so long. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, the Saints also are very confident in their ability to develop unknown players, guys that, that right. are not on the radar that they bring in and coach them up. This is what they've done. They have a track record of it and they are fully secure in it. So I think if you're looking at Davenport at this point, I mean, it, I, I just it, it, to me, it feels like he won't be back in the, in the, in the fall. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's got one year left on that rookie deal and everything. And so like, with that being the case, I could see him playing out this season, but I don't think that they pick up the fifth year. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't pick up the fifth year option for 2022, because it that doesn't mean that his time in New Orleans is over after 2021. It just sets them up so that they're not having to figure out what they're going to do and then potentially rescinding that fifth year option or having to try to extend him or, or anything like that, or try to trade him on his fifth year option. That would maybe be the only benefit to adding the fifth year option at this point is that you could trade him on that contract next year, but you can only trade him if he produces. And if he produces, do you want to keep him? So it's almost easier to just say, no, we're not picking up the fifth year option at this time, or we're not picking up the fifth year option. And then sort of get into that fourth year and allow that to be a contract year for him. And then see if that drives some extra motivation for him to produce. And then how much do you trust production on a contract year? Things like that to where they'll have to evaluate. And I'm sure they have their own standards set for what that is. And then make a decision on him as a potential extension candidate. Or you let him test the market and see what he gets after this year. But I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see the fifth-year option get picked up before the season starts. Could you see him as a draft day trade? As a guy who gets moved for for you know later picks, and you know the Saints try to augment and find those deals that they are so apt to go after. I mean, he yeah, seems like he could be that guy. Yeah, there's definitely an opportunity to do that. Um, I don't know if they're in a rush to move on from him at no, the I don't moment. think it's a rush, yeah. but I yeah, mean, yeah. I think that of the people that are, because some of these guys have to go, and I think if right. you're making the list, he's a more likely candidate than a lot of guys who are of value around the league yeah i i put a couple of other folks in there too like i i feel like you know they are apparently like they're taking consideration and and shopping around malcolm brown for instance the interior defensive lineman Mm -hmm. he had six and a half sacks from the interior last year like he he should be somebody that has a big free agent market so it makes sense that teams might be interested in trading him trading for him so that they can get him as opposed to having to compete for him in them on the market things like that uh but yeah davenport i mean i think that I don't think that I, I think maybe it depends on what happens to Trey Hendrickson too. Mm. If, if for some reason Trey Hendrickson does stick around, then maybe the saints do make that decision about like, you know, if somebody calls them for Marcus Davenport, then all of a sudden that deal feels a little bit more achievable than if Trey Hendrickson doesn't stick around. And, what and the other part is. of it too. Right. Right. And the other part of it too, is what happens in, you know, day one, day two of the draft, right? Like does, uh, does an edge rusher that they really like, fall to them in the first round or become available to them in the second round or they trade up and grab one and then therefore during day three of the draft does that then make the other asset that they have in marcus avonport uh you know available right because if you're moving an edge rusher 
you look at Everson Griffin getting moved for a sixth round pick. You look at yeah. Jarrell Casey's more of an interior guy, but he was moved for a seventh round pick. Um, Yannick Ngakwe moved for a second and a fifth, if I remember correctly, but he also had a ton of sack production and things like that. And he still had a lot of potential, right? So, and Everson Griffin has better numbers than Marcus Davenport. He had a, right. a better body of work in, behind mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And so you can look at all that and say, you know, maybe you can get that early day three selection for a guy like Marcus Davenport. So does he all of a sudden become, you know, expendable? I don't want to say expendable, but, you know, does he become replaceable uh, based on what you've done in days one and two of the draft? And therefore you can move him for more draft assets and things like that. So so there is that that potential there. But I would expect to see Marcus. Dav- I wouldn't be surprised to see Marcus Davenport at all on the field for them here in 2021. It's 2022 that I'm really interested to see what what comes up. Um. The important dates, obviously, like you said, the start of the new season, the start of the new business year um, later this month. And then, of course, the draft um, in April. Um, when do you – I guess the thing is, as the Saints get ready for this draft and all the uncertainty again with the offseason, has the plan uh, changed in how active they may be and how much they do value draft picks this season – because last offseason, your draft class didn't get to do much. Mm-hmm. So are, could the draft picks, picks even be more devalued this season for them than normal in not wanting to have so many young players at one time to have to get up to speed because of the year you lost last season? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Saints come out of this year's draft with three selections again. I mean, they had four last year with, with Tommy Stevens, but, you know, to come out with, yeah. Right. A, yeah, but that was a fun move. <laughs> right, <That> was, <laughs> exactly. That's all that never, was. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was one of those, you know, I feel like you might be able to, it, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Saints walk away with three three picks this year, maybe four, based depending upon how many um, compensatory picks they actually end up getting, which still remains to be seen. We know one for sure will be there, which is a Terry Fontenot pick. But we don't know, you know, if the third rounder for Teddy Bridgewater is going to be awarded or I think what would be a sixth rounder for A.J. Klein will be awarded. We'll have to wait and see. Um, and that might not, that might not be until the owners meeting at the end of the month, I think, when those would be announced at the earliest. So I think, you know, when you look at that, it, it changes the way that you maybe consider how you draft too. like, do you continue to go with these guys like they did last year that are high football IQ guys that may not have an impact the first season and instead are folks that you're developing for the future in, in team building? Because that's what the Saints do very well is they build their team through the draft, but they fill needs through free agency. Right. And so you can put together your functional 53 essentially with the moves that you make in free agency and then fill things out through the draft. I think that, you know, the 2017 draft class spoiled a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, you only draft for impact, for immediate impact. And that's just, that's just simply not the case. The Saints got very fortunate that, you know, six of the five of the six selections that they made that draft turned out to be immediate impact players. And then one of them went on to be a starter on another team. You know, like they got very fortunate with all that. Uh, but for you know this draft, particularly where you're talking about a lot of abbreviated seasons, a lot of players that didn't even play seasons, no in-person meetings outside of the Senior Bowl, like all of those things are another you know, combine kind of, where you're not right going to be right. uh, to, able to do as much, and you're right. going to be heavily relying on pro days this year again. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I just don't. Uh, the Saints are not a heavy risk team in the draft. That's they're right. Just, they minimize risk in everything that they do. Yeah, and and that's allowed them to be so consistent is is minimizing yeah. that risk. It also uh, it also keeps their costs down to draft fewer players. Right, yeah. like right now, the the draft pool might be near five million dollars just based on the estimated monetary value of the selections that they have. That number will go up depending upon how many compensatory picks are uh, are awarded to them. But then it can go down if they decide to do what they did last year and trade their entire day three to get into day to get back into day two and draft you know this tight end right or or whatever who you know whomever it might be that they want. And so you know you might end up giving away a first rounder and one of your third rounders to move up a little bit more in the, in the first round and grab the guy that you absolutely know that you want because there's a, you know, a drop into the the low twenties or early twenties or something like that. And then all of a sudden that drops the value that you're, that you're putting down for your draft picks and everything like that, which is things won't worry about making room for draft picks cap wise. until after they've actually drafted the players, but that's the other part of the conversation too, is like, depending upon what their situation is and they understand what their maximum flexibility is versus what, you know, they, what they would like to do. You could potentially see them going, walking out of the draft with fewer players just so that they have fewer factors. Last thing I want to ask you is um, cap is estimated at 185, mm-hmm. $185 million. Can you give folks, because, you know, there are fans who see the the memes and they see everything and every year people talk about Loomis time and how he affects the, you know, the cap. And then you see people talk about it. The Saints are manipulating the cap and all this. Can you just give a quick primer for people about why that $60 million gap for the Saints is not nearly as bad as the media will portray it um, yeah. and then over the next several weeks? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of it just comes down to restructures. They can chip out. They can chip away between seven to ten million dollars on several players they have available to them. So that's really the biggest thing. And the way that they're able to do that is by restructuring contracts, taking a bit of their base salary, turning into a signing bonus. Doesn't change anything for the player. Player, Players don't even have to agree with it. They, in fact, they just get their money faster for this for that season it basically just comes to them as a bonus as opposed to as a weekly payment and so with that being the case it doesn't require any type of uh yes i agree to do this thing so the saints can do that and then kick some of the money down the road which would make a lot of sense especially when you're expecting disney amazon a 17th game like these television deals are about to be huge for the nfl and are supposed to swell the playoffs that money is really going to start yeah affecting things yeah, so you're able to take basically portions of, if not as, you know, as much of that $60 million overage and actually kick it out to other seasons where the rise in salary cap, the expected rise in salary cap, assuming that we get back, you know, fans back in the stands and things like that within the next two years, then that all ends up making up for whatever you've kicked down the road. So that's basically the easiest way to sort of imagine them basically just taking that chunk of money making it a later problem and then allowing the NFL to solve that problem on their behalf with the new TV deals. I mean, and, and this is not new. No, like this is no, this not is new. I can't remember the last off season where the saints came in and were under the cap to start. Right. I, I can't remember how far it's been. You, you would yeah. know, but uh, it's been, I can't remember either. That, so it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not recent. Right. Yeah. Because you can go back to 2015 where they signed Jairus Bird and they had like $3 million available, $6 million available when they signed him. 
and everything. And then they use that contract structure that we always talk about that starts low and then escalates over time. And he almost played out his deal. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, this is something they've been doing for a very, very long time. And that's, that's Mickey Loomis, Kai Harley, these guys that do a lot of the great work. And the Saints aren't the only team that does it either. I mean, I think the Saints get seen for it because they do it to a greater extent. But this is common for the Pittsburgh Steelers as well. This was a big hang up in the, um, in the Le'Veon Bell contract that was one of the big things was that the Steelers were saying no 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 it it's it's going to be a contract that looks small to begin with but once we're able to get you on the next contract that's when we're going to get you taken care of and Le'Veon Bell didn't want to play that game and everything and that's fine like that's you know it's but Heinz Ward all these other guys were telling him no this is how the Steelers operate so it even goes back that far with other franchises you can imagine the Saints doing it since around that time as well Yes, exactly. You don't want to start the settlement. You don't you want that. Cash now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You see the New England Patriots making moves yeah. like this all the time and everything too. Like this is pretty common across the NFL. And the Saints are not in a situation, and a lot of people will do this, to rather say the Saints salary cap situation has finally caught up with them. That's not what this is. This is a global pandemic that shut down life as we knew it. That's why the Saints are in this situation. And that's why with every dollar – that every millions of dollars, right? Every couple millions that the Saints end up, or that the NFL ends up giving back toward the salary cap. Because remember, the the dip was supposed to be down to one seventy five at the at the least. Now the guaranteed floor is one eighty, and like you mentioned, now the projections are around one eighty five to one ninety. So if you can get to the point where all of a sudden you've got fifteen million more dollars than you thought you had to make room for. The Saints would probably make all the same moves that they would have made anyway, but then come out $15 million richer on the other side. Like that's the, that's the way that the Saints are going to maneuver all of this. It's going to continue to be something to watch um, as we see more and more players get restructured. But until Breeze does this thing, I think that's what everyone is going to remain focused on. Absolutely. And it's, it's so strange to watch a fan base get incredibly divided over, you know, the greatest quarterback in franchise history, you know, top three player in franchise history. You know, people are going to be mad at us again for saying that and not saying fine. declaring him number one, but <laughs> I got my feelings. But no, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to watch a fan base become so divided over the future of one guy. Yeah. And I mean, you, you don't see this very often. Um, and, and I think New Orleans is such a unique place in that regard that Breeze is more than, and in a lot of people, in a lot of people's eyes. But I mean, ultimately, I don't think whether it's Mickey Lewis or Sean Payton, no matter how they feel about Drew Brees personally, their job is to put the Saints in the best position to win, and exactly that right. will always be what it comes down to. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely right. the The organizational focus will always be on the organization, the team. And winning it's not going to be on any individual player individual players will be important but you're not going to see franchise maneuvering decisions being made based on protecting a player or you know bending to the will of a player not that that would be what this is but you know what i mean you've we've seen things like that before uh but you know it, it's that kind of a thing to where you know the saints will protect their assets period i mean like this is a franchise that doesn't use the franchise tag Right. They don't do that. You know, so like they they don't operate in a way that, that they they know that they are not a franchise that is going to spend tons of money and, and, and allow it to 
it's so they do operate within their means. And, and I, I'm sorry, I, you know, people can say, well, you're over the cap. No, you just don't get it. And the reason why you don't understand why they do these things. And there's a reason they stay competitive for 15 years. And they yeah. Don Payton is planning on doing this at least for the foreseeable future. He's not right. trying to go backwards here. And I think Mickey Loomis knows, you know, very well. And, and um, I, 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 I just I am impressed every year by this, this staff and how they handle the offseason. And I think yeah. we'll be impressed again. Yeah, I completely agree. This could be another get get all your get all your what salary cap tweets programmed and ready to go. Get you get them in your drafts. Like this time. Get your, whatever, right. whatever it is. <laughs> get it all ready. <laughs> and start chronicling those signings so you can make your graphic and say right. boom, 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 because it's yeah. going to happen. Brother, uh, tell the folks how they can keep up with you and uh, what else you got working. Um, just thank you again for doing this because, you know, like you said, this is, this is one of my, my favorite things to do each and every week. Yeah, man, absolutely. There's no other place I get to go to where we get to talk about the expansive things that we talk about the way that we talk about them. So I, I always appreciate that. Um, and folks, if you're interested, you can follow me on Twitter at Ross Jackson NOLA, N-O-L-A. Uh, you can catch everything going on over at canalstreetchronicles.com as well. Check out the Locked on Saints podcast every Monday through Friday, wherever you get your podcast. And, of course, make sure you come back every day here for Hard in the Paint with DG. Got to shout you out. And, of course, on Wednesdays, uh, usually here with uh, the Dome Patrol. Yeah, we, we try to do it. I've just had a couple broadcast things the last Man, couple Man, we've days. both been stacked this week. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. When you text me and then you were like, hey, can we do tomorrow? I was like. My daughter yes, was home from school <laughs> today, so you got to make sure she stays online and doesn't start playing games and stuff. So, you know, you got to keep staying over the shoulder. Are you in class? Are you, are you in class? What are you doing? Because <laughs> you know, you see it when you have kids, and and we did it. You know, it was different when we were young because we weren't doing it on laptops and computers. But it was right. like you know, you'd be downstairs or in the, in the other room watching something you weren't supposed to be watching on TV, some rated R movie or something that you know you weren't supposed to be watching, and then you hear your mother coming down the steps, and I'm like, oh, put it back on Yeah, Disney Channel already set on last. Right. Man. <laughs> Yo, I'm on Disney. Yeah, so, it's just more technology to do that stuff now, so yeah, you got to yeah. be a little more vigilant. I, I, forgot the, I forgot the intricacies of going to like the Disney Channel first and then jumping over to like TNT or whatever. That was Aaron Silver, HBO, if you had it, and everything. Like, always go into that one other channel first, and then go that way you have last. <laughs> or for, the worst is when you would forget, like, when my mom would punish me and say I couldn't watch TV, and I would forget what channel it was on when uh -huh. I turned it on. And you're like, oh, man, because you, you're like, what was it on? I can't leave it on the wrong thing. <laughs> Or then my dad would come in and he would, you know, put his hand on, like, people don't even understand this. There's people who have no idea what a TV is. Dude. Putting their hand on the back of that thing and feeling yeah. it, how warm it was. Yeah. Watch the TV, didn't you? Because you can't cool that thing off. Yeah, right. It's the, it's the, it's the toothbrush check of, of, of technology. Yeah, I mean, is your toothbrush like, wet? Is the TV yeah, warm? <laughs> Like, you're talking about a good foot and a half wide on that back of the TV. That the TV I used that I grew up with was longer than the TV that I have right now is wide. Like it is, it, it was insane. Moving a television. <laughs> it was like moving a couch. Yeah. That was a two-person job for a twenty-something-inch television. We ain't talking right. about fifty-inch. No. Wide screen. It was so heavy. Right. Because we weren't talking about twenty. We we're talking about. 20 by 20 <laughs> if they you were lucky repairs were lucky. they used to take the back off of the TV. 
and be in there changing tubes and stuff. This is this is crazy, but that's that's how old we are. Nah, yeah, so <laughs> brother, we will do this again next week. Like I said, y'all know how to follow me um, at DM Grub on Instagram and Twitter, and of course HITP with DG.com. And the merch is taking off. We're getting more people um, checking it out. There's some good stuff out there, so please. And there's more to come soon. We're already working on um, moving over to uh, Shopify. So Dope. that'll be cool. And um, and it'll bring the cost down. So we're mm. doing that for the, for our customers is to make sure that we give y'all more affordable stuff. And, and it really, uh, I think you'll enjoy it when you check it out. So until the next time, for my brother, Ross Jackson, I am David. Brother. This has been Patrol.